Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. There's nothing I love more than having a, a fan favorite come back on the pod. And today we have some escapist content for you with Danny Pellegrino, host of Everything Iconic, and also to talk about his latest book that comes out Tuesday, if you're listening to this before then, October 24th, The Jolliest Bunch. It's a, his collection of like unhinged holiday stories spanning from like October to December. So it's not just Christmas related and it's not even like about Christmas, like in a you know religious sense. It's kind of the spirit of the holidays and related memories. And I relate to him in that like so much of there's something so memorable specifically about holidays because I think there are sensory elements that make make it stand out relative to a lot of your memories. And I think there is so much magic created, whether in school or at home or in pop culture. And I also, we have a lot of very specific areas of interest overlap. And in this book, in one of his chapters, there's an emphasis on talking about the movie Now and Then, which I feel like if you're a listener of this podcast, you are also, you probably have some very inflexible, serious feelings about your fandom toward Now and Then. As I've told you, just even thinking about the movie makes me want to take a nap for 40 minutes. I, I feel so fulfilled and emotionally exhausted all the same. It's, it's so important. And in my book, one of my chapters also kind of hinges on, on speaking about now and then. And when I was reading his book, he mentions the official tagline of now and then, which I like honestly forgot, but is so poignant, is inside. No, no, sorry. <laughs> Not inside every woman. In every woman is the girl she left behind. And if that's not the theme of Barbie America, if that's not the theme of my entire body of work, I mean, I feel like even this episode, I was thinking, man, inside every holiday season is the the Christmas magic you left behind. I've, I've really had a hard time getting older as a person that just like loves the fanfare, loves the holly, jolly, merry and bright, how like storing decorations is annoying putting up decorations kind of takes a while i don't i'm not always in the mood i want to be surrounded by it but i don't always feel like doing the work that is involved and danny and i talk about how it is a fascinating phenomenon when you get older to realize that christmas magic is just a, a function of the incredible thankless effort of somebody before you that wanted you to experience the magic and i don't think that i've really understood the effort my parents put into the holidays until I got older and went out into the world. And I was kind of like, why am I having trouble finding Christmas magic? You know, I know, why is it that no matter how many times I go to the Nutcracker or how many, you know, mugs of glog I drink, I, I'm just not, I, the spirit isn't filling me the way it once was. And you kind of realize that, oh, like the, the magic and the wistfulness and the hopefulness and the, the warmth of the season is, yes, something you can manufacture and to a degree. But it's actually a function of the effort people around you probably put into it growing up that you didn't see. And what made it magical is it just kind of appearing out of nowhere. Is labor the antithesis of magic? I don't know. But yeah, the older I get, I'm like, gosh, you really, hosting's a lot of work, decorating's a lot of work. I mean, just making food for people, even planning gatherings. Um, getting people Christmas presents they actually like and react well to because kids don't have the filter to like pretend they like something they don't. Thinking about the GD meltdown I had when I wanted a Felicity doll and my mom got me 
a Felicity dress to put on Kirsten? I mean, what a brat. I, but like when you really, you know, believe in Santa, which I, I like did, you know, I, you just feverishly make that list. You write like you're running out of time. And then when you don't get something, you're like, that's Doc Claus. What's the deal? Did you not get my list? You're a detail-oriented guy. I know you make a list and check it twice. Why didn't you check mine twice? Needed Felicity. The integrity of Kirsten's pioneer lifestyle is compromised by putting a Revolutionary War era blue taffeta gown on her. And yeah, you would think you'd think you'd know better. But like my poor parents, you know, like by insulting Santa, I didn't realize I was insulting them. And thinking of, you know, if you're my age, like our parents grew up or not grew up, were like in their peak era of parenting young kids, like without online shopping, like they had to physically go to stores. They had to like go to doorbuster deals to pick up like the latest and greatest and hot toys. And I just, yeah, what what a different time. What what high effort. Also, if you're new here, I'm not actively trying to annoy you by talking before getting into the interview. Um, this is a long form podcast and I will do an intro kind of amusing about the topic at hand and then get into the interview. And I feel like I'm almost done, but I what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. The, his book is supposed to be about kind of the October to December range of holidays. And I wish I asked, I wish we talked more about Halloween movies, given the time of this. Um, Is there such a thing as a Thanksgiving movie? Like, no, right? Is that why we have 10 Thanksgiving episodes of Friends instead? I don't feel like there are Thanksgiving movies, but there's great Friends episodes about Thanksgiving, and there um, is a great Gilmore Girls episode about Thanksgiving. Anyway, but with Halloween movies, I probably, I feel like normally I'm not that inspired to talk about them because I'm not I, I'm not into the horror category, so my Halloween fandom is kind of literally PG. Uh, and I'm like, man, what a waste of the company. Like, it's so because it's nice when I talk to somebody that shares my reservoir of interest, because in normal conversation, if, you know, somebody's trying to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, I can't really be like, well, yeah, but, you know, it's no Halloween town too, Calabar's revenge and be taken seriously. But I feel like Danny would take that seriously. And I just I do need a place to put my Halloween town thoughts because it is insane that there are four of them like the Twilight series. I don't like did we need four Halloween town movies spanning eight years? But it was really I don't know. I really liked it at the time. I found Marnie a little annoying, Um, which I'm not proud to say the baby misogynist in me oftentimes was like, there's just something about her I don't like. But yeah, Marnie, I maybe I was jealous because I think at the time per, you know, Halloween and witchy related things like the name of the game was you turn 13. You're hoping you wake up with powers. In some shows, it was 16. Depends on the witchcraft canon. But, you know, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Teen Witch, Halloween Town. I'd even extend that into just wanting powers like telekinesis a la Matilda or Alex Mack. It's weird to, like, you know, go out of your way to wish that there would be, like, a chemical spill and you would radioactively, you know, turn into a person that could melt into a liquid puddle and travel through air vents. But, I wanted it. I wanted powers. And it's interesting now, the satanic panic of it all, seeing people, you know, of the more extreme Christian persuasion. Uh, I've seen some videos on my For You page about their concern retailer Swift in witchcraft and that the Evermore set in the Eras tour and the, the, the globe lights were witchy and Satan worshipy. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, guys, witchcraft was most millennials grew up really into witchcraft. And it never was that big of a deal. It wasn't about worshiping Satan or doing anything like creepy and sinister. It was about wanting powers so you could get the most popular guy in school to like you. Like I wanted powers to make the cheerleading team. 
I, it, you know, I mean, it. I revisited some key scenes of the movie Teen Witch after seeing Robin Lively in the box at the Chiefs game with Taylor Swift and her sister Blake. Blake is the sister of Robin Lively, the star, the, like redheaded star of the late 80s movie Teen Witch. That is so good. I forgot it's like half musical, half movie. I mean, I think you guys will remember like the title track of like, never gonna be the same again. And then that the like chant. So she she becomes I think she wakes up on her 16th birthday and becomes a witch and wishes to be the most popular girl in school. And like when I tell you my aspirations in life were limited to just this. Hang on. Every cool guy does need a popular girl. Do you remember when her friend raps in the song Top That? often like supernatural powers were invoked to like simply give someone confidence and it's always a girl like why we never stood a chance anyway but yeah it was it was a relief to talk to somebody with my same uh interest in christmas movies because i am a christmas vacation person that's what his book title the jolliest bunch is is referencing but i do think christmas vacation if you didn't grow up like if you haven't watched it for forever watching it now you're gonna be like, this is so I don't know if you would think it's that funny, but it's almost funny because you remember how funny it was when you first watched it, not because it's like that objectively funny. Also, I, I think we're both just very devoted to Tim Allen's The Santa Claus. And the entire time I was watching Succession, like my Matt Leave show, if you want to hear my th- succession thoughts, Sammy and I did like a, I don't know, tight 30 on it in <laughs> that episode maybe three weeks ago, Sammy Sage. But the entire time I was watching Succession, I was thinking you know who did it right is the Santa and the Santa Claus because he fell off a roof, evaporated, died, and succession was as simple as zooming in on a business card. Put on the suit, the reindeer will know what to do. And I just think it was like a really organized, straightforward business practice. Even though the whole storyline of, is the name underlined? Is it crossed out? Was excellent television. There were times when I was like, well, this should, if it's not something this big, this should have been more straightforward. And a big effing job like Santa Claus. I appreciate that, you know, there was some legalese uh, to help with his succession. Though risky, because if you need Santa to be like holly jolly, I don't, it's like this methodology really only is going to self-select a person who happens to be like lurking around at 3, 4 a.m. on Christmas, because I guess that's the only time Santa goes out and could potentially die. And it's like you see him fall off a roof and probably die. You see the body evaporate, and then you just go fish through his pockets and put on his clothes? You know, like, not kind of sketchy behavior for your successor. But, I mean, I think in general, I go back and forth between thinking Santa is holly jolly and thinking, like, his alleged omnipresence is, like, pretty creepy. Uh, Also, the breaking and entering. Also, just the manipulation uh, for kids to 
be on their best behavior in the name of consumerism. There's a lot there, but we don't we we those are layers we do not need to peel back today. For today, we don't need to peel our oranges. We stick our cloves in the oranges and we put nine in a bowl because I don't know if that applies to oranges with cloves in it like it does lemons with the feng shui that I learned from Shannon Bedore, not from the actual practice of feng shui. Um, what are those things called? Coriander balls? Pomander balls. I always forget what they're called. They smell so good. Also, it will never, speaking of oranges, it will never not be a mental block for me that in the Great British Bake Off, like so often, orange is a flavor combined with chocolate. It's just it, it's just tough for me personally, but I guess I don't need to get into that either. And in general, when I think of pomander balls, it's kind of like a potpourri culture because um, I just love to say everything's culture, that it's not culture, but there kind of was a potpourri culture growing up that I just feel like I wonder if millennials, like we're, we've been accused of killing off entire economic sectors and major industries like, I don't know, like cereal and the American dream, um, which I don't find realistic, but I actually do think it's possible we we would have killed off like proper potpourri because they're just better ways to scent your home that are less mulchy. Anyway, you guys, I feel like on one podcast, somebody called in and was like, how do you feel about lying to your kids about Santa? And then them being like, oh, you lied to me. But like when I tell you, I never that never even crossed my mind that my parents lied to me. I never I never thought about it like that. But it's interesting that that's kind of the discourse now. So I don't know what you guys are doing with Santa. Uh, Teddy's a bit too young to care. Um, he just looks at lights right now and like drools. So I don't really know if he's paying attention to what I'm saying about Santa. But I don't know. I sure did like the delusional magic of thinking I heard somebody on the roof. What a gift. <laughs> I think it was fun hearing a lot of his family stories. Hopefully it'll make you think back on some of your brighter times. And um, even like... I don't know. I just love the idea of even hearing other people's traditions so you can like create and establish your own new ones. Like, for example, my husband's family, my in-laws, they're amazing. You guys have heard from his three sisters who are on the podcast in the episode One Hit Mumbler. Love spending time with them. I'm pretty inflexible about going home for Christmas because my family goes hard for Christmas and I just really want to be able to go home for Christmas. Um, And they've always, they'll do like their thing with their family on Christmas, but then we'll also do something after Christmas. And it's really nice because in recent years, we started celebrating something called Ramjul, which is a it's a Norwegian term for the week between um, Christmas and New Year's Day. And it's like a Norwegian holiday that refers to the week of like tranquil time to spend at home with friends and family, kind of unbothered by the outside world in between those two holidays, which I really like the idea of kind of like nesting, drinking glog, playing games, sitting by a fire, spending time with family. I know a lot of like oftentimes people don't can't take off work or have to work that week but in the event you don't or can work from home we just kind of turned it into a fun week that it kind of allows the christmas magic to not be over and allows me not to dread that i didn't make new year's plans because i never remember to um and we just like have cozy family time in the week between and that's like a favorite new tradition of our families that um yeah just wanted to pass along in case anybody else wants to celebrate rom jewel it's a great way to keep the fun going and not feel like the Christmas magic has to be over after Christmas. And you can keep up the decorations and kind of just relish in them. And I don't know, huge fan. But alas, we we shall move on to our interview with Danny. I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm headed to Danny's show in Chicago tonight. Um, last night I went and met up with some Beths in Chicago. It was so much fun. We, like the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, made custom scented candles and then went to dinner. And I had to laugh because I posted on my Instagram story. I, per my diatribe about women in stemware, it was just funny to be sitting with Bess and they get like these huge, gorgeous goblets the size of their heads. Like 
never seen a wine glass this big in my life. It almost, it was too good to be true. They would bring out these, this amazing stemware and mine came in a glass without a stem. And I was laughing because I think I cut out of last week's episode because I was like, nobody cares how much my thoughts about stemware to this degree. But I think, I think stemware, I think stemless, stemless stemware is insane because especially if you're drinking a white, it warms it. Um, But also it's just like grease stained city, which I was talking about was my fear. And I was like, wow, I know that's not what people mean when they say we plan and God laughs. But, you know, I always like to refer to God as like an Amelia Bedelia type when people like thank him for mistaking their needs. And um, it's just like, yeah, I did this whole diatribe about stemware uh, just this week. And it's like, oh, I thought you meant you wanted a cup that said, like, where's the stem? Because there isn't one. And, you know, this is not important, but it was just kind of like perfect timing. And it made me laugh. And the Beths were so, so lovely. And I wish I could meet all of you and hang out with you all the time. Hopefully I will soon because I have, uh, eventually I'll announce a book tour situation of my own that we're working on as we speak. But anyway, if you like this episode, like share with a friend, tag us on Instagram at Kate Kennedy, at Danny Pellegrino, at Be There in Five. Rate and review five stars. Um, it's like the most helpful thing you could ever do. And you guys are the best. Enjoy. I just want to thank our first sponsor this week, which is Liquid IV. I don't want to sound like a cheesy salesman, but I don't, these babies sell themselves. I mean, they. I feel like it's back before I drank Liquid IV, I kind of assumed it was more of an athletic vibe that people use them like recovering from leg day or something. But this is Liquid IV is like the perfect addition to binge watching a TV show, recovering after Zoom meetings, recovering after a long night, you know, perhaps of drinking. For me, it's just been a way to drink water faster because you guys know how I feel about water. And there are three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. But best of all, liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone in a single stick. So in my head, it's like, great, less water for me to drink, two times the hydration. And now their hydration multiplier comes in three delicious sugar-free flavors. We've almost entirely turned over our inventory to being sugar-free. They have white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. And it's a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's just very convenient packaging. I always take it when I'm traveling. Liquid IV is great for planes, but it just kind of brings me back to life when I know I haven't been drinking enough water. Like I said, one stick of liquid IV and 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. And it's non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. And of course, it's a perfect thing to be using, you know, before or after a workout and for like an active lifestyle. But just wanted to mention that for those of you like me that are just, you know, deep scrolling through the bombshells from Britney Spears' memoir and feeling exhausted. It's also great for that. Really, the limit does not exist. Grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code BETHEREIN5 at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code BETHEREIN5 at liquidiv.com. All right, you guys. Joining me today is podcaster, screenwriter, comedian, and host of the insanely popular Pop culture podcast, everything iconic, not to mention casual New York Times bestselling author of How Do I Unremember This? Unfortunately, True Stories. And today we're here to celebrate the October, I believe it's 24th release of his latest book, The Jolliest Bunch, Unhinged Holiday Stories. Please welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast, the wickedly talented Danny Pellegrino. 
the wickedly talented. Oh my God. I'll never forget John Travolta saying that at the Academy Awards. Hi, Kate. It's so nice to see you and chat. And I'm so grateful for you having me on. And you know, I love you and your show. So I'm I'm just excited to chat. Well, you, yeah, you're the, you're the perfect person to try out the wickedly talented reference with. I know. <laughs> Kate, and I also just have to say really quick, I'm so excited. I know your book comes out in January and I'm just so excited. I think the cover is so beautiful and brilliant with the CD on it. And so I'm just really excited. It like hit me in my feels when I saw your cover. Oh my gosh, that's what I hoped for. Thank you. It's, I, I think with reading your book, The Jolly Sponge 2, it's like all you want as an author is to, um, it's like your stories are a vehicle for people to remember theirs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's what I kind of wanted through my book. Like I wanted people to see the burn CD and think of being like a baby pirate, just waiting eight hours for that bad boy to burn. Right, right. And I think I've found, uh, at least with my writing, is that I'll hear from so many people. I tell a lot of family stories in my books, and I hear from so many people who maybe had a similar feeling or, or, or even sometimes a very similar situation in their own families, whether it be a chaotic family dinner or, or whatever it is. But it's so fun to hear kind of everybody else's stories that, you know, ours make them relate to in those ways. It's very exciting. Well, and you're in this book, like it's everything I thought it would be like, you know, it's heartwarming and it's holly and it's jolly, but it also like has twists and turns. I mean, there were some moments where my jaw was on the floor and I'm not in the business of spoilers, but I think just like my pitch for this book is like come for the Christmas cheer, stay for the shocking reveal of the true story behind the appendectomy. Oh my God. I love you so much. Yes. Yes. I do. Finally, (laughs) finally, as if people have been waiting or something. (laughs) I do. Yeah. I want it to be silly and fun and yeah, I want it to be all the things I think I love around the holidays. Uh, I think a lot of the Christmas movies and stuff that I tend to inhale in November, December, there are things that are really silly and funny and then they have a lot of heart and sometimes some drama. And so I, I wanted to have all those things. I was even analyzing like home alone and home alone has these really heartfelt moments with uh, Kevin and um, his mother, Catherine O'Hara. And so I love kind of when those other feelings slip in. So I wanted all of the kind of each chapter is a different little story. And so I wanted each little story to feel a little different and uh, to bring something different to the table and and to not kind of shy away from maybe a little more drama or mystery or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, there are so many of those moments. And now that you mentioned Home Alone, there's a part where you bring up how some actresses like literally are 80 for 30 years. Um, And (laughs) Maggie Smith. Yeah, Maggie Smith. And not not necessarily the same, but Catherine O'Hara is kind of like a mystery. How old was she in Home Alone? I feel like spiritually, she's always been 42. Like, always. (laughs) Always. Like, yes. (laughs) Same with, I feel that way about Susan Sarandon, too. Susan Sarandon has always been about 44, maybe, I'd say. Yes. Since I can remember. Uh, And then Cameron Diaz, to me, feels spiritually like 37, always. Amanda Woods is her. I don't see any separation from, like, vaguely that age. Right, right. And you can look at movies of Cameron Diaz like that are 15 years apart. And to me, she looks like I I don't think she looks that much older from The Mask to, I don't know, Annie or what's the most recent (laughs) thing she did. In reality, that's a 20 or 30 year difference. But to me, I'm like, oh, she's she even looked older in The Mask and now she looks younger. So it always kind of like evens out to 37. 
Well, and then it makes the rewatch kind of uncomfortable because you rewatch my best friend's wedding. And you're like, why is Dermot Mulroney dating a college student? Oh, my God. I know, Kate. And you can look at my best friend's wedding and there are weird things to it. It is like strange to me how he's uh, Dermot Mulroney's character is telling her to write as soon as she's done with college. She's got to go with him. And I don't know. It's just all kind of bleak when you really pick it apart. But I do love that movie. Oh, it's outstanding. Well, and it's part of the canon of why we all thought we had to like tell a best friend we'd marry them if we weren't married by 28, God forbid. (laughs) It is haunting rewatching it, though, and you hear Julie Roberts say 28, and it's like, what? (laughs) I know. In Big Fat Greek Wedding, it's just 30. Like, that's the entire premise of the movie. (laughs) Wait, have you seen the new My Big Fat Greek Wedding yet? No. The third one? Is it good? I haven't watched it. No, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm dying to watch it. I know. It's one of the reboots where I'm like, I feel like there's space for this. Feels like a good plane movie to me. Like, I, I know I'll see it on a plane and I'll be like crying in the middle of it. And I'll probably take a nap and that's enough for me. Like, I don't even need to see the whole thing. <laughs> yes, you'll get the gist. Yeah. Well, since you're like a lifelong lover of pop culture, even opening the book, it's like, is it so surreal to you that your book starts with praise from, you know, some niche up and coming creators? It's Kelly Ripa, Andy Cohen, Drew Barrymore. Like, are you kidding? It's wild to me. It's so crazy. I, especially, I, uh, Kelly Ripa and, Drew Barrymore, I grew up in the 90s watching. I remember Kelly joining live with Regis, and my mom was always a huge fan of Regis when it was Kathy Lee. And then, you know, I, I don't just remember that search for a co host, like watching before school in the mornings. And then I think uh, Drew Barrymore, too, just watching her movie. I'm like, I can't even believe that, yeah, they were kind enough to like read the book in advance and then provide, you know, little reviews or blurbs. It was blew my mind. It's so, so grateful. Cool. Well, on your podcast, part of like the lore is, you know, you love KLG. Everyone has a story. Have you ever actually been in contact with her or interviewed her? Yes. Yeah, I interviewed her once and I sort of sang everyone has a story (laughs) at her on a Zoom. Uh, She was so kind. It was so fascinating to me because I know Kathy Lee. I followed her career forever because, again, my mom's been a huge fan. and, And I really think she was the best on the fourth hour of today. I miss her dearly on the fourth hour of today. So yeah, it was so exciting, but I know kind of how she can, I don't know what the right term is, facilitate or go between sort of really silly and then be super religious and then super dramatic. Like she can take you on a roller coaster in one sentence. But so I interviewed her and it was, it was great to hear from listeners who maybe weren't as familiar and they're like, oh my God, she went from talking about uh, today, today show to then preaching about going on a Bible journey with her, and then to you know, so it was just a roller coaster, and I love that. But it was funny to hear from people who maybe weren't as familiar with her. I love the idea of yeah, like younger Gen Z people having no context for this woman, and you're like my dream guest, Kathy. Well, <laughs> and you are giving me a lot of credit for saying that Gen Z is listening to everything iconic because I don't know that so many young people are listening, but but I do. I don't know. I guess I take that with me because when I was a kid, I was watching Rosie O'Donnell and she was showing me people as a child that I had no idea who they were True. and opening my eyes. So so I will take that on. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many Gen Z are really listening to my KLG interview, but I hope they'll go back and listen. Was Rosie O'Donnell, did she have a bit with Koosh Balls? She did. Yeah, I have um, right. I have I have her Rosie O'Donnell Koosh Ball right here. Okay. <laughs> Remember this launcher? Do you know what this launcher is? Like, I do. That just went from the back of my brain to the front of your desk (laughs) readily available so fast. That's amazing. Wait, can I tell you a little secret? Please. So I had ordered this Koosh launcher. Uh Uh-huh. 
but this is like the new version. So this is the one like you'll find in stores now. Okay. It's not the original Rosie one. And then of course I went on eBay and I bought this one, which is the one of the official Rosie ones. But see, it this was sold to me on the black market. So mm. the, it was supposed to say Rosie here. So then I got this one again thinking it was official, wasn't exactly official. And then away from my desk with my Rosie O'Dall, I do have the official, official one. <laughs> so I've spent way too much money on Koosh Balls is the point. How long was that show even on air? I think it was like six years. Oh, that's a pretty six strong or, run. Yeah, and she left, if they, if she would have been on longer, she left volunteer. I don't know why, I, I'm always doing like PR for Rosie O'Donnell, <laughs> which is sick, but <laughs> please buy the jellies, but no. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, she. it was like six years or something. That oh, I, I still can't believe you had a crucible readily available on your desk. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, and good for people to know who are in the market for launchers. Don't fall for yeah, the black market stuff. Be careful on the World Wide Web in general when you're shopping, but especially when you're going on eBay. You know, if you're shopping for a McNugget buddy on eBay, then you need to be careful. I love a McNugget buddy. I love those jam jars that we used to use as cups. I don't know. I guess yes. those might be Welch's, but they had like cartoon characters on them. Where do you stand on mason jars as drinkware? I, you know, I dabbled in the early 2010s, probably as a function of like Pinterest wedding culture. I find that the ridges are a little abrasive unless you're Mm -hmm. drinking a margarita out of them, in which case they grip to the salt quite well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it for margaritas, but I I don't care for, uh, yeah, like you said, other drinks in there. It's hard to drink and I feel like it dribbles. You need a straw if you're going to drink out of the mason jar. Right. They look cute, but and, I, yeah, I, I, I don't love them. And if you're buying proper mason jars, they do come with lids. And then you have all these lids and you don't know what to, I hate when I have lids that I don't know what to do with. Yeah, right, right. My parents, when I was growing up, they used to do uh, pickle peppers. We had a little tiny garden that did peppers and they would pickle and they were so good. It was like, I don't know what they put in them. I have to figure out the recipe, but they were like sweet peppers and they would always put them in mason jars. So in our garage, we always had those those boxes of mason jars or, or or old ones that we would reuse. And I just remember so many mason jars being around, but we never used them for drinking. It was just for pickling, pickling peppers. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Linda Pellegrino, in addition to all of the other things she does, had time or made time to pickle peppers. God love her. Yes. My dad, I think, was more of the one taking the charge for the peppers. I think he thought of it as like an Italian activity to oh. him in his brain. Um, so be, I think because the... My great grandma was the one who kind of started pickle. I, anyway, um, but they, I'd say they both enjoyed the pickled peppers. <laughs> look, <laughs> at me, look, at, look at me problematically <laughs> making gender roles out of pickled peppers. Men and women can pickle peppers, ladies and gentlemen. Exactly, Kate. Exactly, Kate. Um, okay, so high level, like what made you want to write a holiday focused book? Yeah, when I was writing my first book, how do I remember this? There were a lot of holiday stories that as I was putting that book together, I was finding that a lot of family stories were coming up that were centered around the holiday season. And I was like, I can't make this all holiday stories. And I do love a holiday book collection. Of course, David Sedaris has a very popular one, but there's Gene Shepard wrote a holiday collection that was uh, what was the movie Christmas Story was based on. And I like the idea of being able to pick it up every year and kind of read a chapter and feel cozy and reread it, whatever. And so I wanted to, I wanted to have that. And so Luckily, the first one did well enough that the publisher allowed me to do this one. But early on, I just noticed I had all these stories and it was like a Thanksgiving one and then a Christmas one. And I just felt like when I was 
really going through the Rolodex of stories that I wanted to tell that I thought were silly and funny and kind of incorporated those things we talked about earlier that uh, the holiday collection would be really fun. So, so yeah, I'm excited. And I, I just sort of kept writing from the other ones. So it all sort of blurred together, but the hope and dream was always me saving these stories for this book. Uh, I, I just kept push, putting them aside so that if I was allowed to do this one, uh, I would, I would be ready to go. It's like your own, um, like Jessica, Nick holiday spectacular. Like everybody needs a holiday spectacular. I know. And you know how I feel about those. I, I would give anything for there to be like a loophole in the ABC contract from when Nick and Jessica did the variety hour where they could somehow bring the two of them back to do sketches on ABC on Christmas Eve or whatever they aired it. That's my dream. It's it's kind of remarkable to me how poor quality most holiday like variety hours are, but it's almost like you don't yeah, you don't want them to be good. No, they're supposed to be terrible and just weird. They're supposed to be weird. It's like it's, a, a strange mix of music and and decorations and then they people doing sketches who have no business doing sketch work. Right. There's like something I very funny to me about networks doing things that truly treat the audience like they're stupid, but we also are stupid. Like every year when I watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, I'm like, why? What a racket. Like, why are we even pretending like these people are singing? <laughs> uh, Kate, the Macy's Parade is my all time favorite thing. Like, it's so nuts the way they pair those people, the way they do the lip syncing. Like you said, it's nuts. And they're lip syncing on a float with like a Jenny O turkey or something or a Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> in an elaborate costume just, or I always think about um, Jordan Sparks, like singing on a insurance float or I don't know. There's just like <laughs> Jordan, crazy. It's Jordan like crazy. Sparks singing Battlefield on an insurance float. Like that has happened. Like uh, I know Carrie Underwood has sang a song with an oven, like a, an oven with googly eyes for, I think it was maybe the Pillsbury float and Nikki Blonsky lip syncing on, I mean, it's like nuts. It is always nice to know Nikki Blonsky is available. Like she's she's everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> you know, my one of my favorite things that ever happened on my podcast is I was interviewing Nikki Blonsky when the Jen Shaw Real Houses of Salt Lake City guilty plea came out. And so I broke it to her. No. I broke it to her live. And it was just so it's like so the clip of it is makes me laugh so hard. Cause she also like lived I don't know if she still lives in Utah, but she lived in Utah, so she had thoughts about it. And it was just it was funny. What an amazing Venn diagram you probably never thought you'd be the center of. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of your spread. listeners are like, who's Nikki Blonsky? <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, so I think that part, the one of the things that really resonated with me, I feel like we're both like, sen- you know, sentimental, sensitive people. And you talked about how perfect days end with you wiping the same tears that result from the crappy days. And I've, I really felt that in terms of the... Um, I don't know that Christmas nostalgia, something about it really stings. You really feel homesick mm-hmm. at home. You, no matter where I am, I'm longing for something. It, yeah. There's and, a loneliness with yeah. the holidays. And that's kind of like, I, it's a little funny. So many Christmas songs are about like love in the context of not being with someone for Christmas. Yeah. I think with Christmas music, it's interesting. There's either that, uh, vintage kind of all I want for Christmas is you happy, uh, very upbeat song, but then there's the melancholy songs like Judy Garland's Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, or even on Mariah's album, she has this heartbreaking ballad called Miss You Most at Christmas Time. And I 
think there's those are the two extremes, right? It's like holly jolly, everything's perfect, shiny, great. And then like the really deep depression. Because I think if you listen to like Judy Garland's version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, it's dark. Like it's so dark. It's so, the way she's singing is heartbreaking, the melody. And they even had to change the lyrics because it was so dark. So at a certain point, I forget who it was that recovered it, but they changed um, the lyric we about muddling through and instead they sing about hanging the star on the highest bow because it was too depressing. So it's like those two extremes are fascinating. I didn't know that about hanging the highest star. I'd almost like even triangulate that with the other weird category of Christmas music, which is like sexy Christmas tunes. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like the Santa baby. Yeah. Yeah. I love those too. I love that version too. Well, I was like last Christmas, I was like heard myself singing out loud the lyric, Longs on the fire, fill me with desire. And I was like, well, that's different. (laughs) I love, who doesn't love a wood burning? But um, I just thought like, it is funny how there is like a seduction element or even I think America collectively the past maybe five years figured out it wasn't Santa Claus mommy was kissing. Oh, right, right, right. Which isn't clear. I know it's not clear. And I, there's a song actually by the Weather Girls called uh, Dear Santa, Bring Me a Man. And it's like very sexual. And I keep thinking that one year certain drag queens have recovered it or covered it. But I just feel like culturally we're due for a big star to cover it because it's such a fun, campy, sexy song about just these two women singing that they really need a man under the tree. And uh, it's just so it's so good. But I, I keep thinking somebody's going to cover it and make it like a huge Christmas hit, but it hasn't happened yet. The Weather Girls really have a, kind of a one-trick pony there with supernatural means to get men, <laughs> from I rain know, to I, Santa. <laughs> well, and the song is almost, it's almost like a parody of uh, It's Raining Men. Like, it, oh. it almost sounds exactly the same, except for the lyrics are about Christmas. <laughs> Definitely encourage everyone to listen. I love the camp of self-referential music. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, we had it. And I would I would do that. I think if you're a one hit wonder, like every one hit wonder, not saying that weather girls are, I'm sure they've had a couple others. But if you're a one hit wonder, I think like redo the song with like a jingle bell in the background. Mm, yeah, it's, I think Michael Bublé did that with home. Right. Remember that song home? How could I how could I forget? It, it was everywhere. And then all of a sudden, a couple holiday seasons ago, it was appearing on his Christmas album and like it had a jingle bell background. It's like, what? I thought, but I would do that if I was Michael Buble or whoever with a song. It's a great idea. In general, I think there's a ton of room for innovation in the holiday music category because, like, I just don't know why we, I don't know, 30 years ago decided Bruce Springsteen, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, was like the version that we're going to play on light adult contemporary radio for eternity. What's the, what's the one that you hate the most? Like when you hear it on the radio, the one that just burns your ears. Is there one? Um, I think from just like a purely masochistic angle, it would be the Christmas shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's see, I like, right. the, I like the manipulation of that song, the emotional manipulation. Before she meets Jesus tonight? Like, I'm just not always prepared. Did you ever see the movie version of that song? <laughs> they made um, a movie with Rob yeah, Lowe. Yeah, with Rob Lowe. It, oh, my it God. Would, it would kind of play as a double feature with Christmas Every Day with Eric Von Detten. Yes, yes, yes. I remember watching Christmas Shoes as a young kid and just sobbing, like <laughs> alone in, I don't know where I was, probably in my parents' basement or something, just like sobbing at that movie. Because there's a death, I forget exactly who, I think it's the, 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 the woman mom. from Father of the Bride, right? Is she yeah. the mom? Yeah. yeah. Kimberly Williams. 
Oh my God, it is Kimberly Williams Paisley. <laughs> and they did a sequel, a sequel movie starring Neil Patrick Harris. Rob Lowe wasn't back, but I, I don't think I ever saw the sequel, but there is a sequel to the Christmas Shoes movie that's based on just that crazy song. Wow. Huh, I'm gonna have to look that one up. I wonder if it's slightly less. I, mean, uh, it's I don't like, know I, if we need to see it. I don't know that we need to watch it or look it up, but it I, exists. I think that I struggle in general with, like my mom loves to do this. She loves a moment to like keep things in perspective, align your gratitude. And sometimes at Christmas, she'd like make us read The Little Match Girl. Oh, that's cute. Well, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a girl who at Christmas like keeps herself warm outside by lighting matches. I mean, it's tough. But I guess besides the Christmas shoes and Christmas Every Day and the ABC Family Classics, I feel like most families have, or most people have their their one token Christmas movie that they're pretty inflexible about, like being the best one they watch every year. For you, is that, per the title, Christmas Vacation? I think in the family atmosphere, yeah. I think Christmas Vacation, my family, it's one movie that we all love. Home Alone, too, I or, or the first or second one, I think uh, my family also can sit around and everybody will love it. But I think Christmas Vacation is one where we look at it and it's like we're watching and saying, oh, that's just like us. That's the one I think my family relates to the most. And I really wanted the Jolly Sponge to kind of feel like Christmas Vacation in book form. Christmas Vacation is definitely my family's in terms of like the, I feel like you're either a Christmas vacation person and a Christmas story person or like an It's a Wonderful Life old timey, you know? Yeah, you can yeah. be all three. Don't, yeah. Don't you feel like Christmas vacation is very Midwestern? I think it's set in Illinois or that's where the Griswolds it's are in from. Chicago, it just, yeah. Yeah, it just feels very Midwest to me. All of it. Did your parents fast forward through the pool scene when you were a kid? <laughs> No, no, but maybe they knew that I was gay and they're like, we don't need to bother with that. (laughs) But I remember one year they didn't fast forward the part where Clark's like shopping at the Hancock Center and the sales lady like lifts up her skirt. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who does that? Yeah, she shows, I know, in the middle of the mall, just like shows not even leg. It's like hip. Is that what she's showing, I guess? Yeah, pelvis. Very seductive hip pelvis, yeah. Do you? (laughs) There's a um, lot of swearing in that movie, and it's, you know, not as family-friendly, but then there is also still that heart that these Christmas movies have to have or always have, and so I like that, too, where it's like Clark character is just swearing, and that there's that one speech where he says every brainless, dickless, hopeless, you know, he's calling his boss all of these terrible names and swearing, and then... You know, a heartwarming ending. I just like that kind of it, it. I mean, I guess all of my sensibilities really go back to Kathy Lee Gifford because I feel like Christmas Vacation facilitates in the same way that Kathy Lee Gifford in a sentence facilitates. And by the way, mm. I know I'm probably not using facilitates right. I think I'm just maybe that's a different word, but you, your listeners know what I'm saying. But it's like that kind of roller coaster of I just want like really broad humor that's like silly, someone falling off a ladder, and then like let's that scene of Clark Griswold in the attic watching oh. old home movies and sobbing. It's like, I, I like that mix. It, that is Christmas though. That yeah. kind of cornucopia and Kathy Lee Gifford. of <laughs> Kathy Lee Gifford. Very, very apt analogy. I was going to ask what you think is like the most magical or m- most well done depiction of the North pole cinematically. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. That's such a good question. You know, I'm partial to the Santa Claus movies. Mm. I just love that version of Bernard and the head elf. And then they have the hot cocoa 
Uh, I can't speak as much to the new version of the Santa Claus movies, which is a series now on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. And I, I did watch every single episode of the first season and it is coming back for season two. I'll probably watch that as well. But uh, the original, uh, probably the first one, the depiction of the North Pole, and it started to get wacky. Like by the third one, mm-hmm. it got really wacky, too wacky for me. Too wacky, too technologically advanced. Yeah. And it was like a lot, it became a lot of fart humor mm-hmm. where like the reindeers were just, in the first one, I think they might have added a fart sound effect to the reindeer. But then by the third mm-hmm. one, they're just doing full Foley art where every reindeer is like pooping and like on screen and making fart noises and like eating shit. And <laughs> it's just, they lean too wacky. That's a great distinction because I'm not, I'm not really into bathroom humor. And in the first one, I do believe there, yeah, there's one tasteful joke. Comet is accused of having pee Lyme disease. <laughs> is that what it was? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember correctly. Um, no, that, the first Santa Claus is really important. It, it's a really magical depiction of the North Pole. And I think that like, they're just, they're almost like visuals of like, oh my God, a cookie dispenser. Yeah, the hot chocolate dispenser, shaken, not stirred, like, the Judy of it all. It just, it was yeah. kind of a magical thing. And are you familiar with like the TikTok trend of talking about having a fuck ass Bob? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No one has yeah, a more fuck ass Bob yeah. than that mom. <laughs> I love you. Yes, you're so right. Exactly. Yes. The mom. That was also my problem with the new series is they didn't really incorporate the original cast as much as I would have liked. Uh, yeah. But, but I also would say that the second Santa Claus movie has, I think the best moments of the whole thing, the whole franchise, like, there's a couple scenes in that part two that are so beautiful. There's a Molly Shannon scene that's probably the funniest scene out of all mm-hmm. of it. So I think, too, although they ended up leaning again a little too wacky for me, ultimately part two is redeemed because the moments that shine are so beautiful. That's a great point. And I I do feel like, I don't know, I don't know if this was just me, but like I genuinely I don't think knew until a few years ago that there wasn't an E in Santa Claus. Oh, I know. I know. Like that's, yeah. it just looks right to me to have an E. It, yeah. I have gotten yelled at plenty of times on social media by adding the E uh, because <laughs> that's what we were raised on. We were raised with the E. Like, let's just put the E in at this point or let's spell it both ways now. Like Tim Allen made that happen. <laughs> let's just go with it. I, I mean, forgive us for being, yeah, eight and not knowing like legal wordplay it just it wasn't ever clear to me but now when you watch back they they do say the santa claus right um even the methodology the business card i mean whoever finds it that's like an insane way to pick the new santa but and and then i feel like with every sequel they would like zoom in on that business card and there'd be a new clause. you know that's what the whole thing is there's a new clause that they're just seeing on the fine print (laughs) suddenly martin short's gotta show up as jack frost which i did love his performance but that's Tell for another time. I know. One of the things I loved that I think is really relevant to another pop cultural touchstone of this year um, is how you open with talking about, I think what we all realize when we're older is we long for Christmas magic only to become adults and realize that Christmas magic is simply a function of somebody who works their ass off and doesn't ask for any credit. And therein lies the magic is not seeing how much work goes into it. Yeah, there's always someone in the household who's the person in my family, it was my mother kind of spearheading everything and trying to make sure like everything was perfect and that we all looked perfect. And behind closed doors, we all knew, no, that she was getting a little nuts trying to keep it all together. And rightfully so, because she's doing a lot of the work. And there's always someone, whether it be mother, father, 
sibling, whoever that is taking on the holidays and not just the end of the year holidays, but even like birthdays, usually there's someone in a friend group who is like, Oh, trying to, we got to make this birthday party great or, or organizing everything. And, and they're always the ones having the worst time because they're the ones doing everything and it's exhausting for them. Right. But they, the problem is they tell you it was nothing and slowly, surely build resentment until it, it it's one year leveled up to a rolling boil. And your story about Linda, I mean, did you have to ask her permission? No, I, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> and so I just go and write and then <laughs> hope that my parents aren't mad at me. But she, I learned kind of with the first book, I think what her lines are in terms of what I'm sharing and what she's comfortable with. And so ultimately, I think she was... She's read the book now as of this recording, so she's happy with everything and okay with everything. But I think it helps that her friends with the first book, they liked the stories about my mother. And mm-hmm. so her friends were kind of encouraging her. So now she thinks she's a star. So I think I could write anything and she'd probably be <laughs> be thrilled about it. Like, Dan, I'm a star. She was just telling me I'm going to be doing some live shows and the first one's in Cleveland and then she's going to come to that one. She's like, Dan what am I going to do there? Everyone thinks I'm a star. And it's like, she's already preparing as if it's going to be like paparazzi or something for her. She honestly is a star. And she's really like a beacon in this chapter for the unfairness for many women for years of, of the in- inequity of domestic labor involved with hosting. And I think there's not a soul that will read that and not be able to relate when you've just like had it. And I think that the reason I said another co- pop cultural touchstone is because it reminded me of to a much more extreme degree of um season episode six of the bear season two yeah jamie lee curtis yeah yeah Yeah, i love that episode i and it's so yeah she's so brilliant in that episode but i think yeah my mom i look at back at all of these stories and weirdly the the book really became this sort of I think of it as like more of a love letter to moms, but it really became about moms because the moms in my life are those people who always trying to keep it together. And I don't know, I I found, I was thinking back on my mom and it it wasn't just like the Christmas Eve dinner trying to make it perfect, but I even was thinking back and there's a story about a childhood play I had at school where she, (laughs) she was the one who was trying so hard to get there. Nobody else in my family could make it. And, and I don't know, I look back on that story and I realize how badly my mom was just trying to show up and do all of these things, mm-hmm. show up for her kids at the school play while working a job, while trying to keep everything going in terms of presents and baking and all those traditions that she felt we needed as kids. And, uh, and yeah, it was, I just look back and I think, wow, they both of my parents, but really my mom just tried her best to make it a special holiday. Even the years we maybe didn't have, money or we, I don't know. She just always was trying to make it special for us. And so I, I left this book with such an appreciation for her trying to do all those things, even those times when it wasn't working out, which I think everybody in their own lives looks back on those times where it it didn't work out or it, it was more chaotic. And those are the most memorable times. So yeah, I think any parents out there who maybe have young kids and you're trying to keep everything perfect. Just know that down the line, the kids are going to remember, remember those, those, those fault, um, those holidays where everything was faltering and breaking down. And I don't know, am I making sense? You absolutely are. I, I okay. think that the, I think I kind of wanted to shed a tear at the end of the book thinking about like, wow, it, this book is, a, this book existing is a testament to that effort. And, and I think that holidays and vacations are two things that 
are the combination of miserable and magical. And but the best part is they're memorable. And um, yeah, we're, we go hard for Christmas too in my house. And I just I'm grateful to have. There's so many sensory elements. I think of Christmas is why it like is stickier than mm-hmm. other things in my memory. Yeah. Yeah, all the decor and uh, twinkle lights. I mean, it makes you remember everything too. It's so vibrant in your head and in your memory. Is Linda um, into Spode? What's Spode? Wait, what's Spode? You know Spode, the collectible Christmas china with that one tree that's never changed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, No, she's not. She's not. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But all of the decorations, I mean, still to this day, my mom has a lot of the same decorations that I grew up with and Mm -hmm. puts them out every year and... Uh, there is something so strange about that to like haul out stuff from the basement or garage <laughs> yeah. that you have put up for 30 years or 35 years. I mean, it's wild. Speaking of that wild, um, do you mind sharing with the class and your family? I mean, I've never heard this in my life. It's a really hot tip. Where is the hottest place to rent chairs in town? I'm so glad you brought this up. So I do talk about this in the book. God, I love a cliffhanger. Just wanted to thank another one of this week's sponsors. That is, of course, Pear Eyewear. We're talking this week about all things merry and bright, but you can also keep things parry and bright. And no, they did not make me say that. Just a bad pun to tell you that there are new looks over at Pear Eyewear. Tis the season. There's no merry, merrier way to do it than with Pear's new holiday collection. Switch up your look in a snap with top frames for every event and occasion. You know how people like match pajamas with their little ones or their big ones? <laughs> I don't know, siblings, parents, whatever. You can gift top frames to yourself and your whole family if you are all glasses-wearing individuals like most of my family is. And what's so cool about pair eyewear, in case you're not familiar with it, is you get a base frame and they have a frame to fit every face. They have five new wider base frame styles, which I definitely need a wide frame for my face typically. And they start at just $60. And that's like, you know, prescription. But then they have top frames that started just $25 and you snap them on and off and you completely change the look of your glasses. I told you my favorite thing to do is to get the sun topper so I can change prescription glasses into sunglasses in a literal snap and only travel with one pair of glasses instead of two when I need a prescription sunglass situation. And with their holiday situation, or their holiday collection rather, they have a jolly assortment featuring snowy scenes, classic plaids, yuletide activities, and your favorite festive hues. And you can let your holiday spirit shine with seasonal styles that slay, pun intended. They did write that one for me. And I think that like this business model makes so much sense seasonally because do you want to be wearing holly jolly glasses? Yeah, but year round, no. But for just $25 to snap on and off your glasses for you, your kids. I mean, it's a great idea that gives you flexibility with your eyewear. And with virtual try on, you can find the right frame shape for you from the comfort of your home. I just think the idea of matching Christmas glasses is, is too cute. So make every look merry with Pair Eyewear. Go to paireyewear.com slash be there in five for 15% off your first pair. That's pair, P-A-I-R, eyewear.com slash be there in five. This episode is also brought to you by ButcherBox. Later in the episode, you'll hear me ask Danny about a, a phrase in his book, purse meats, uh, that I, I struggled with, but I don't struggle with the idea of having a freezer full of premium cuts of high quality meat. And you can do that with ButcherBox. We're getting into colder weather months. We're getting into the holidays. I love having a freezer full of Butcher Box's options, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crepe-free, wild-caught seafood, humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. I find shopping, grocery shopping for cuts of meat to be a little confusing, and the premium pricing that's attached to a lot of those words I think is kind of crazy. And it's just very simple to have this delivered right to your door with free shipping always. And you can curate your own box 
or have them curate one for you, which I like to do. So I try things that are maybe outside of my comfort zone. That's how I got into salmon. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I don't know why it took me so long to get into salmon. But they have an amazing deal right now where you can get ground beef for the lifetime of your subscription. And we use this ground beef constantly for impromptu tacos to put in a in a pasta sauce. We're just a huge fan of the convenience and cost and quality of of butcher box. And you can also get an exclusive member deals and recipe inspiration guides, tips and hacks on their website. So don't forget about that. But ButcherBox is giving us a special deal. Sign up today using code be there in five to receive ground beef for life plus $20 off your first order. That's two pounds of ground beef free in every box for the lifetime of your membership plus $20 off your first order when you sign up at butcherbox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five. I think this is a great holiday gift, by the way. What's the hottest place to rent chairs in town? I'm so glad you brought this up. So I do talk about this in the book about when we would have our Christmas parties or uh, even other functions at graduation parties, whatever it was, if we were throwing something at the house with more than 10 people, we would rent chairs at our local funeral home (laughs) because it's free. It was free, at least in my hometown. You could go to the Tabone Funeral Home and you could rent the chairs and they would give you those really cheap wooden chairs, the fold-up ones that they would use at the funeral home and you could pick them up and then drop them off and there was no fee. And so every single uh, Christmas Eve or any holiday where we needed them, my parents would send us, if we had the car, The I have two older brothers, she'd say, boys, you got to go pick up the chairs and someone would drive us and we'd haul all the chairs into the thing and they were always had a bunch of gum on the bottom because yeah, they're chairs. <laughs> so they were just had so much history and everything. And then that's where everybody would sit. And they, Oh, the other thing was they were like stamped on the backing. So it would say Tabone funeral home and like black <laughs> letters, obviously. So people would know those were their chairs. And so, yeah, at Christmas, everybody was just sitting on funeral home chairs. And I didn't even think of it until I was writing this book and I'm, I'm filling in the details of this holiday party that we would throw every year. And I'm like, wait a minute, why the fuck were we renting funeral home chairs? And it, and I, so then I was asking my parents, like, wait, did we rent? Like, am I remembering that right? And it was like, yeah, we still do it. My parents are like, yeah, if we have people over, we rent the funeral home chairs. And it's crazy. It's kind of the ultimate metaphor for like what you're trying to say <laughs> about Christmas. It's like the best of times, the worst of times. Those chairs have seen both too. Yeah. And I have vivid memories of like getting dropped off at the funeral home and my dad or my older brother would be at the car waiting or like opening up the trunk, making sure there's room for all these chairs or or borrowing someone's truck so, and, so we can set them up. And then they would send me inside to like ask the funeral home director if they can open up the back to get the chairs or, and I remember like walking through a funeral home and there'd sometimes be services going on. <laughs> like I'm there trying to like navigate people mourning over and there's a corpse right there and then i'm like where are the chairs <laughs> i'm here for the chairs it's it's ama- the the free factor makes everything make sense um yeah. i was kind of like oh i can't believe funeral homes are running like a secondary backdoor biz with party rentals and i wonder if it's all over the place or it was just my i think it is all over the place actually i do believe that it is most places you could probably call up and say, can I borrow the chairs? But it's very bleak. And my, the other inexcusable thing about the whole uh, whole situation is that they still do it. And it's like they could have bought <laughs> chairs at some point throughout their lives and just stored them in a garage or closet because they're not nice chairs. They're very cheap wooden chairs. And I don't know why no one's invested in them so that we have them at the house instead of having to go to the funeral. But I guess everybody's saving money. So 
Well, and it's pretty intuitive that they would have a disproportionate amount of chewed gum relative to other chairs because that's something a kid would be chewing at a funeral. It's kind of like chewing gum at church. And your parents are like, hey, knock it off. Yeah. What and also those chairs aren't regulated by anyone because they're not meant to be loaned out all the time, I guess. So they don't have someone there specializing in cleaning those chairs. So <laughs> you just get what you get. Bigger fish to fry at the funeral home. And- Yeah, and you can't complain as the person picking up the chairs because you're getting them for free. I if yeah, for those of you out there, funeral funeral chair renters of America, let let us know um, if that's a thing, or maybe this is local to Cleveland, local to your parents. Hard to say. At the very least, people in Solon, Ohio, can call up Tabone Funeral Home. I hope. I hope I'm not standing PR throwing them under the bus, but uh, great funeral home otherwise. And (laughs) and even with that, I mean, it's a great business model. But yeah, I, I keep thinking now that you mentioned it, Joe, the, about the stamp on the back of the chair, just that said to bone. What a bummer. Like, <laughs> I know. Oh, man. There are so many funny, like, I think what I love about you and your podcast is like, they're just like the funniest things you'll say in passing that you really have to like, let it marinate for a second. And like, I don't know if Thank I'll you. get past like the term purse meets, for example. Oh, yes, yes. There's a tale of a woman who, yeah, had purse meets. And <laughs> I took a cross-country road trip with her but she had carried meat with her purse in the purse sounds like a hallucination it is the wackiest story i've ever heard i can't believe you've been sitting on that story and haven't told it i know i a lot of them i mean i was excited to share because with the first book i think a lot of the stories i had shared on the podcast and or in one of my live shows and so people knew a lot of the stories and so it was fun though to go into this one thinking oh man i can't wait for people to read that or I'm excited to hear what they think of that story. And and of course, I do say early in the book, it's like these are silly stories meant to make you laugh. And I change names and dates and things to protect people and not so that they're not yelling at me. Um, so there are little little details, and stuff, of course, that I change. But um, what I found is that as I'm hearing of people from people who have been involved in these stories, I keep hearing that they're they're telling me, oh, you forgot this little detail, and it'll be like the craziest detail, and I'm like, oh my yeah. god, so oh, it was man. actually nuttier in real life. Yeah, the the story of the road trip, it's kind of a relatable tale of a person who's weighing their desire to be liked over like you know their own imminent danger. <laughs> and the, the, the weird thing is, like, I like crazy people. I don't know if crazy is the right term for that, but I I like quirky or whatever. So I tend to buddy up to quirkier people. And I love just watching. But then sometimes I think in life you find yourself in a in cahoots, let's say, with someone who's quirky and you're like, oh, wait, I have gone too far. Like now I'm not just observing, like I'm involved in their crazy life. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think the, the switch is flipped. And so that's one of the stories in there. It was such a good story. And I also love how you, you include the pictures. Like, I can't believe you have pictures of some of these things that just perfectly detail the moment. And my personal favorite, I think, is the um, it's like if you were to Google stock photo for man shopping till he drops. <laughs> okay. You're talking about the Black Friday yes. photo, right? Okay. Yeah. So there's a chapter in there about Black Friday, which is this crazy shopping trip. It's not the same anymore as it used to be in the early 2000s, but I was in my local paper for running into a Target. Like the... <laughs> They have a photo of me and I tried so hard to get like the original. So we just have one that uh, we had 
taken with a phone. I tried so hard to get like an HD version of that. My editor was like, do you have a higher definition <laughs> version of this? And I was like, no, I don't know how to find it. But I think you still can see uh, what was going on. But that picture appeared in the paper and it's just like me running into a Target at 5 a.m. or whatever time it was. And literally, I think all I got was DVDs. Like I, I think I bought the holiday for $3. And it's like, that's why I went out for Black Friday shopping. <laughs> but you're like in a perfectly... Like cartoonish, almost crisp, like winter outfit. It's like you have on a nice coat and uh, it's a scarf just w- over one shoulder <laughs> and a beanie. And you're kind of in this pose of like man running or like man about to take off. It's just like oh, some of these things I'm like, of course you would be in your paper for a Black Friday doorbuster. It just makes too much sense. I mean, I genuinely do love the holidays. And so that's what I mean. It's like I these stories are there's truth uh, within all of these stories because I mean, yeah. So I tried to provide as many pictures as I could to say, look, I'm, that's when it happened. <laughs> it's also like, it's full of your memories, but it's full of like astute analyses of, of Christmas things I hadn't thought of and that I would have to pause and Google because like something I never noticed in the book, you point out that in the song 12 Days of Christmas, gifts one through four and six and seven are bird related. A lot of bird imagery at the end of the year. And I know we're recording this in uh, late October. And even with Halloween, it's like now there's crows and ravens. And and then you go into Thanksgiving and it's turkeys. And then Christmas is all of these birds and 12 days of Christmas. It's like there's a lot of end of year bird imagery that's happening. And I just feel like no one's we're not discussing it enough. No, we're not. And what's even crazier is upon researching this, because I wanted to understand, like, why the birds? Because actually recently, <laughs> I was rereading Genesis, like the Bible Genesis, like, because I wanted to revisit creation. And God did create the, the sky animals before the land animals. And I almost, that stuck out to me as like, wow, what an interesting, oh, interesting. thing to specify and prioritize. I wonder if like birds were considered kind of like greater than, but when I was reading about the 12 days of Christmas, like, yeah, apparently all people used to eat that weren't aristocrats were birds. And the wow. worst part is, I think, and I don't mean to upset people, but I do feel like the redeeming part of um, 12 days of Christmas is of course the five golden rings. That's the gift like I'd actually want. Um, right. And like, unfortunately, that's a shorthand for ringed pheasants. And there are actually seven birds in the 12 days of Christmas. Oh, my God. Wow. I didn't even know that. I didn't wow. either. Because I, I, you blew my mind with the fun fact, but I can't even believe it's not actually rings. Wow. I was just going to bring up the bird lady from Home Alone, too. And, and I don't need to do that. I should stop myself. But I do also just want to say that she's a bird icon at the holidays as well. Another bird icon. And a very funny <laughs> anecdote of... Um, I mean, I guess tell people, you know, you feel pretty strongly about how to craft a Christmas text. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, any holiday when you get those group texts or or from an old friend where it says happy birthday or happy Christmas or whatever holiday you're celebrating, I think sometimes people feel obligated to send something. And I just think we either need to don't send anything or at least make it specific enough in a Mm. text that it's something. I, mm-hmm. I think we need to get away from just sending the very generic uh, text. You got to at least think about it before you send. Yeah, you give some good tips and tips that like I didn't even know I had a preference for, like specifying that we don't need the first X and XOXO capitalized. Yeah, no, I like a lowercase thing. I like a lowercase XO if I'm texting somebody a lowercase to me. I don't know. It's more I know it's not maybe grammatically correct, but yeah, I prefer that. Did you find, wait, when you were writing your book, did you find as throughout the editing process that 
uh, certain ways you talk or say, words you say aren't real or you're using them wrong or oh uh, it, yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> constantly. Yeah. It was a little too. It was a very self-aware process that was yeah. painful and important. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I consider myself more of a creative writer than a technical writer. So when it comes to spelling and grammar, like I, I know how to craft a sentence and I can do all that stuff, but I'm not as I'm not great with it all. I'm much better with telling a, a story than I am with crafting the perfect grammar and spelling sentence. And so uh, it's interesting getting notes back. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I've been I use that wrong in my speech or whatever it is. The best part of the editing process, too, is like the copyright or the copy editors or like a legal read for people that have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Just like one of the notes in mine was like, Kate, I just want to make sure uh, you do not know people named uh, Nicholas Parker or Elizabeth James because you do disparage them in chapter 11. And I was like, oh, no, those are the parents from the parent trap. Thank you for checking. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Did you record the audio book? Yes, I did. Did you? You already did it. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that process is so funny because I, I had a director in my session and he was an older straight gentleman. And so I think a lot of it, he's like, had no clue what I was talking about. But then I'd have to tell him, I'd say, oh, can you add a censor bar over <laughs> Nick Lachey's last name? And then I had to like explain why I was like, oh, people get it. Like, so I just wanted that, like, as if I'm swearing, I wanted it over the word Lachey. So that beep sound or whatever that um, censor bar sound is. And so like, trying to explain to him why I'm team Jessica Simpson in the year of 2023, which is so far past when they were in the public consciousness and having to explain that to this older straight gentleman was just so funny to me. And I I loved it. Yeah. Recording an audiobook is kind of like the worst crowd work you've ever done. (laughs) I know it's, I find that to be the worst part of the whole process really. Like it's having to reread. And I had just gotten over COVID when I recorded mine and they, they weren't able to like, change me to a different date. And so uh, I just was going in there and then you think it's so good and you're so proud of it. And then you're with a a person in the booth and they're just, they're not laughing or anything and there's no other crowd. And uh, yeah. Oh, it's, I, I recorded it like nine months pregnant. I have so much anxiety (laughs) about it because ultimately it can't be perfect. Like they get you started off good, but then once you're on a roll, they just let you talk and you know, I, I I probably will never listen back to it. But it's also funny to read stuff you forgot you wrote yeah. and be like, that wasn't funny. <laughs> now that I say that out loud. <laughs> I tell everyone who's doing a book to make sure that you record the audio book before it goes to print because they Ugh. send it to like the warehouse for print because you no matter what, you, you have a million editors or there's people that look through the book, of course, to uh, before it goes to print to make sure you're not having any printing errors, but inevitably when you read the audiobook, you're going to see something, you're going to see a couple little things that you're going to want to change. So yeah, I always encourage like do that before, make sure that the publisher does not send it to print uh, oh. until after the audiobook recording. I was horrified in my arc that I never caught in the 25 million times I read it that I called them the goo dolls. I was missing oh, a goo yeah. and I'm like, I that know. completely ruins the integrity of pe- the People record. read through and hopefully... <laughs> People listening to this at least will know that there could be some errors or something. It happens. It goes through so many different changes. I know they're going to leave the ones that are on Goodreads. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's an interesting process though. And I don't know if you had this problem, but with recording the audiobook, it's a different pace too. So that's what I struggled with. On my show, I talk really fast and Same. I have a different kind of cadence. And so in the audiobook process, they want you to go a little slower. And so you're reading it slower a lot of times. And then I had that mind fuck of, well, are people going to be so confused if they listen to this? Cause they listen to my podcast, but then it's like a totally different vocal thing that I'm doing on the audiobook. And what I found with the first book is that people understood the difference and, and liked it and they can oh, speed good. it up with the app now. But I was so worried about that. Okay. That's a good thing to know. Cause I've listened back to a couple clips and I'm like, you, li- yeah, you edit audio cadence. of yourself for a living and then you get this thing back. That's so formal. And you're like, this is not my vibe. Yeah, no, I know. I felt the same way. I was so stressed about it. Even a- after it came out, I thought I'm going to get messages saying like, why did you record it like that? But I, <laughs> but people realize that the audiobook is a different cadence. They ultimately get it. Yeah. And this yeah. one with my, with the Jolliest Bunch, I was able to lean in a little more of my style, I think, uh, than the first did one. Did you do like voices for dialogue? Oh yeah. That's the most fun part is doing, um, voices for like my family and my mom and, that was really fun too with the guy in the booth because he was like cracking up. I mean, he might not have gotten all the Jessica Simpson references or whoever uh, references, but uh, he did like, I just saw him laughing when I was doing like my mom or dad's voices. And so that part I found so fun because there is a lot of dialogue in my book because I try to craft the stories almost uh, like I'm, you can visualize them hopefully. And so there is dialogue from people. And so that was really, really fun. I was even thinking about when I you at one point referenced like the gibberish that is uh, a spell cast from Hocus Pocus, and I was imagining you in an audiobook like doing the Hocus Pocus spell. Because um, yeah, you have to say it with a certain oomph. Yeah, yeah. In the first book, there was dialogue from Renee Zellweger in the movie Cold Mountain, <laughs> <laughs> and recording it because I was laughing at the way. If you watch Cold Mountain, which is an old movie, but Renee Zellweger is doing like crazy accent work in that. And so is Nicole Kidman. But so I was briefly referencing that. But there was like one line of dialogue that was lifted directly from Cold Mountain. And she's I don't even know how to explain her speech pattern. You have to go watch a clip from it. But trying to do that in the audio booth where I was just kept laughing because you sound nuts. And I can't do that act. I was pointing it out because it's so wildly all over the place that it's hard to do. And so trying to then do it, I sounded nuts, but it was fun. I uh, I listened to your first audiobook. It, God, it was it was a joy. And I don't remember thinking it sounded di- different from your podcast, but oh, good, there, there was good. part of is your first book in the opening. Something I think about a lot is you saying like one of your favorite pastimes is like getting drunk and going to like Laura Linney's IMDb page. Was it Laura oh. Linney? <laughs> No, I think it was Al- maybe Alice and Janney, but also Alice Laura Linney work. Yeah, Laura- <laughs> Alice and Janney, Laura Linney. Uh, and you were so kind to do my book event in Chicago when I was there, and uh, or Naperville, I think I was. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah, that was so fun. I have an issue where like I have anxiety after I do things on a stage, and I'm and I think I didn't understand the assignment because sometimes when you do when you moderate like a book thing that it's scripted sometimes they want you to read it and come up with stuff and I think I did like a hybrid and I was like Danny probably thinks I'm crazy because I'm like really um kind of going for my own questions here (laughs) no absolutely not I was so grateful for you to do that and I'm yeah I thought you were amazing it's all such a blur but I and I think as sensitive people you mentioned we're both sensitive people and I think you're just so hypersensitive that everything I mean in release all this stuff is so personal so writing a book like this, it's all you. And it's, I was a ghostwriter before and 
it was really thrilling to get to release a book where I was the ghostwriter for it, but it wasn't, I wasn't writing in my own voice. So it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't feel as vulnerable. And so with something like this, it's like, you feel so vulnerable. So you're just hyper aware. And so most people, like you said, you didn't notice I was doing a different cadence on the audiobook, but like, we're so, it's so stressful thinking people are going to see these vulnerable parts of us that you just, I I don't know. I'm all, I get so doom and gloom about it. I'm like worried about everything. And then I don't know, ultimately no one else is as worried as I am. I know. I have to remember that because I feel anxious about, yeah, so many things with the release. But um, you'll keep getting worse. You'll keep getting worse. <laughs> keep but just know worse. everyone's going to love it. <laughs> okay. And I can't wait to read it. And everybody's going to just devour it. Oh, I appreciate that. Okay. Well, speaking, you just said ghostwriter. And it reminded me of something you brought up in your book that um, was important for me to revisit, which is Casper. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. I have. I was obsessed with that movie, and I've really. I need to rewatch it. You said a, a, upon rewatch, a lot of it's really not adding up. Well, there's a lot of strange stuff with like Amy Brenneman, <laughs> like she, <laughs> her playing like the mom ghost of Christina Ricci's character. Uh, there's a lot of business with the uncles, but ultimately, I do love the movie. And that Devin Sawa moment, of course, it's not something that hasn't been said a million times, but like that reveal of him as Casper when they're dancing and remember me this way is playing. And then they have that kiss. I think that was an awakening for so many millennials when they saw Devin Sawa as Casper. And so, (laughs) uh, but you know what I learned recently was that, so I knew there was a different voice for Casper, but I didn't realize until recently I saw behind the scenes footage that that voice, he was on set. The guy who played Casper's voice was on set every day doing it, you know, off camera or right there doing all the scenes as Casper on set. But then Devin Sawa got all the credit for it. And so for some reason, I always thought that other guy who played Casper was just like in a recording booth. So I was like, oh, well, he just recorded his lines. But now I feel even worse because I'm like, man, that sucks that everybody associates Devin Sawa with that character. But he only played him for like a couple minutes at the end of the movie. I guess that's what you sign up for. It's a ghost vocal. A ghost vocal. And speaking of ghosts, I, I... don't know if I mentioned this in the book. I think I did, but the, I, I really do believe culturally Casper would have a larger significance if they cast uh, character actresses in the roles of the three uncle ghosts. If they were like mm, three mm-hmm. aunt ghosts, I mm. feel like, and you got really you know, strong women, I think it could have had the same sort of impact as Hocus Pocus. But I, I think with the uncles, you we don't really know who plays them. And yeah, it was technically exciting, but I just think camp wise if we had campy character actresses in those three roles it would have had a larger cultural imprint or at least one closer to hocus pocus i believe you're so right because i i didn't find i didn't even remember those characters and for as much as i watched the movie you'd think i would and i I really think that and you mentioned this in your book and i was like oh my god you know everyone says like you know myths of childhood like quicksand like things you believed in that like didn't end up being a thing i think this concept of unfinished business (laughs) Is something that was so pervasive to me, like, oh, my God, you don't have unfinished business. But like, it's a very, I don't know, 90s ghost thing where it made it seem like, yeah, to be permitted to haunt, you need to have unfinished business. Who finishes their business? I know. It's so wild. And by the way, there's also like a lot of death in the movie Casper. My boyfriend and I just watched, uh, he, we've been watching new horror movies every night. And he put one on the other night. It was a newer one. And I forgive me, I don't even remember what the name of it was, but there were less deaths in it. And it was like a slasher horror movie. And there were less deaths when I (laughs) thought about it 
than in the movie Casper. And there's like at the end of that movie, they're just like killing people. Kathy Moore, uh, the villainous woman, Kathy Moore, how do you say her last name? I don't know. But she, they're like, her and her henchmen are like throwing each other off cliffs and then they're becoming ghosts and trying to use the potion. And then the dad falls off a cliff and it's like, there's a lot of people just like falling off cliffs at the end, but they have a potion that could bring them back to life. But I'm like, these are a lot of deaths for a kid's movie. A lot of deaths for a kid's movie. And I also like, okay, this is philosophically confusing for me that relates Casper to the Santa Claus. The tagline of Casper on like the, the VHS is, Seeing is believing. And the Santa Claus, they make sure to make the distinction that believing is seeing. Wow. I never heard, I never even thought of that before or, or knew that. But I, I think, yeah. They came out back to back. And I think the taglines were on both of the VHS things. And I just remember thinking, well, this doesn't, this is directly like these. <laughs> you guys are confusing me. Yeah. <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> like the voices. I, I would just imagine you at like young Kate as, do you remember Jan Brady in the uh, yes. Brady Bunch movie where she has the two thoughts or yelling in herself in her head? Like, that's what I imagine. Like, what is it? Which is it? Like young yes. Kate. <laughs> I, I love to read covers of things, back of cereal boxes. I don't know. Just always wanted the, the scoop. The 90s in general just presented us with movies that wouldn't happen. Now, we always talk about how things are made by committee nowadays. So every Mm. movie is, you're getting kind of a middle of the road thing. But in the 90s, things were so much messier. And I don't know that something like Casper would get made today unless they did like a direct reboot of it with with a very similar script. But otherwise, I think if you were to present a studio or production company with the original Casper script without knowing that that movie came out, they'd say, oh, this is too wackadoo. And this is, Mm -hmm. I don't know, they would want to kind of shine it up. And a lot of what I love about those 90s movies is that they're weird and have strange tonal things happening. I mean, the example I always give is... uh, like first wives club at the end singing. It like doesn't really fit with the grounded nature of this story about these women, husbands leaving them and getting revenge. But then they do just this out of nowhere musical number. And to me, that's the best part of the whole movie. I love it. But tonally, I think if you were to present even that script now, somebody would say, Oh, this doesn't work. Or I don't know. I, I just think they would try to workshop it too much. And then you lose all the charm that the movies have. Workshopping Yes, it is the death of quality. Yeah, like I that Amy Brenneman stuff where she's showing up in, as a ghost and talking about the unfinished business and stuff. I think they would think it's too dark for kids or mm-hmm. kids can't handle it. And I like that. It's weird and in there. It doesn't sometimes make a lot of sense. And they are just throwing adults off cliffs to kill them. <laughs> Have you done a Disney Plus revisit of Tim Allen's Jungle to Jungle? Yeah. Oh, my God. Wait. So, that's, oh, such a see, problem. This is why I love talking to you because we're... <laughs> too similar but i did recently put it on and i turned it off quickly but yes all of that stuff was so weird and then i mean or debate man of the house did you ever see that one man with John of the taylor thomas i don't know i just rewatched a lot of those 90s kids movies and yeah they're wild wild well, a lot of things like with jungle to jungle or mrs doubtfire or whatever you, you, it's kind of some single dad stuff that makes you rethink who the villain is like Sally Fields, not the villain of Mrs. Doubtfire. Like who he let petting zoo animals into her gorgeous San Francisco Victorian and, you know, ate her begonias. Like I'd be pissed too. Of course she wanted a divorce. Yeah. But she had that fuck ass brunette Bob vibe of the mom (laughs) in the Santa Claus. She was prepared for the, with the Bob. I have some Christmas rapid fires for you before we wrap up. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, Okay. Are you tasteful white lights or a colored bulbs person? 
I think a colored bulb, but I love those nowadays. You can get the tree. Our tree has it where you could change it from one to the other. You just hit the button. It's a pre-lit tree. It's a fake tree and it will change. So I like the option of being able to do uniform if I want. But ultimately, I think I always go with the colored. And I do, I love a vintage holiday decoration. So uh, I, this year I really want to get the big bulbs for our tree. You know, the the bigger ones. Yeah. I know. I kind. Of, I also love a house. I'm sure we both love the way rich people do Christmas. But one of the signature things is like the classy tree and then the fun tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. love a fun we tree are, with huge bulbs. Uh, yeah, yeah. We all only have a fun tree, <laughs> but I <laughs> we have all the ornaments that are like pop culture ornaments, and so I have you know a Power Ranger ornament, a Ninja Turtle, a Kathy Lee and Hoda, and I don't know. I have all sorts of pop culture stuff, a lot of Disney ornaments. And I like that kitschiness of ornaments. I do too. I think classy Christmas has a place, but can, can be sterile. And if you watch Hallmark movies, it's used as a device to show that a, a character who is a lawyer who's daring to work on Christmas ha- is frigid and cold because he has like a white tree. Right. Yeah. Very bare bones tree. Growing up, we always had the tree with the popsicle stick ornaments and the same mm. ornaments for years and years and years. And I just think it has so much more character. And, and when you have ornaments that even with the pop culture ones, it's like, Oh, these are the things that I like. It feels personal where those sterile ones can be very beautiful oftentimes, but I just don't know that they really represent you. I, that sounds so crazy, but you, you know, know what I'm trying to I, say. I, I genuinely understand. I mean, I, I love so many kitschy things like, you know how advent calendars are like really having a moment and culture and every brand's making them. I was like, I think my favorite Christmas countdown, I don't know if they did this where you grew up, but like we made red and green alternating construction paper stapled countdowns. As little like bracelets almost. Yeah. I know. I love, we did that too. I love that. I love that. Yeah. All the personal stuff. uh, I don't know. It makes it special. I, I also... Last year I had a, I was into the vintage reindeer. So I was like obsessed with going mm. to home goods or wherever and trying to find those like very vintagey reindeers. And so I got a bunch of them, but I don't know. I like when I'm looking at a decoration, it's making me feel something instead of just getting it. Cause it's kind of, I don't know. I don't know. I know. I, I really want like an ex- excessive, extensive Christmas village someday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd have to really invest and I don't know where I'd store it. Yeah. I do believe that if I were to ever have enough space and money, I would become one of those crazy people with a full village and I just keep adding to it because I do love the idea of a village, but I've never been able to dip my toe in quite yet due to those spatial reasons. But but I will one day become someone with like, who's a crazy Christmas village person. Do you like a train under a tree? How do you feel? Where do you stand on that? A train under a tree... I love the idea of it. I don't know if I realistically see myself turning it on in a regular way that would contribute to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Do you like a train under a tree? I'm on the fence about it. I, I've never had one personally under the tree, but I've been looking at them lately and thinking, <laughs> I kind of like the idea of it and I like the sound of it going. Yeah. Are there tree know, trains I, yeah. or do you have to buy a regular train and make a circular track DIY? I really feel like, Kate, this might be my out loud and proud moment. I think this year I might invest in a train and I don't know. I'll have to do some recon and research to figure out exactly how, but I am kind of feeling I might do a train 
<laughs> I might run a train. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to. <laughs> Wouldn't it be the first time, but this will be the first physical uh, train under a tree. <laughs> I can't wait to follow that journey for you because I have a feeling it's going to be harder to find a circular train track than maybe we even think. Yeah, and I think it will be it will be challenging to narrow it down. Did you yeah. um, growing up on snow days in Ohio? Did you guys make snow cream? Not snow cream. What's snow? What like, do you mean, what's snow you would, cream? We would eat snow and put vanilla extract in it, which is so weird. Did you oh do my that? God, no, we never did that. And also, that sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> like in Virginia, it didn't snow that much. And I remember one of the best parts of snow days, we'd go out, collect fresh looking snow, acid snow. And uh, yeah, you, you mix a little bit of milk and vanilla extract and we'd eat it like ice cream. Is that? That is wild. That's my funeral that's home chairs, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing you thought everyone I mean, did that maybe no one does. <laughs> I guess you're just adding it to ice, basically. So I guess it's not really that. It doesn't sound that bad. In, in the in, Midwest, too, that snow and slush gets so gross by the really by February, March. It's just so disgusting. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, and you lived in Chicago, too. It's just like slush central for months mm-hmm. on end. It's, it's It made me feel differently about snow cream. Which is a gross term. <laughs> that's snow cream. I know. I've never heard snow cream before. And now that's all I'll hear in my head. <laughs> I will be hitting the pillow tonight and just hearing snow cream. snow cream. Do you have any feelings about nutcrackers? Like the decoration? Yeah, I, I like a nutcracker, but I'm, I don't, uh, yeah, I like a, a nutcracker is fine. Yeah, you don't feel like it's strongly fine. about it? I don't it. like love a nutcracker. I don't love it, but I don't have a a problem with it or I'm not super against it. I just think I'm going for the reindeers. I'm going for the snowman. Mm-hmm. I have a big problem with like the gnomes lately. They've been leaning too much into gnome work at the home goods. And so I don't like all the gnomes. Um, <laughs> gnomes have also- this, gnomes are kind of like la- how llamas were two or three years ago. Like out of yeah. nowhere, there was a ton of llamas at home goods. Yeah. A few years ago, there were these skeletons around Halloween time that were doing yoga. I have one of them, but it was like everywhere you'd see the skeletons doing yoga. And then I feel like the gnomes were everywhere. And I had a gnome tree topper. So as I'm, I'm saying this as someone who has leaned into the gnomes before, but I just feel like that was my looking back on it. That was my chasing a trend. That was me chasing a trend instead of just doing what I like. And so then I had a gnome at the top of my tree and I, I was looking and I was like, oh, fuck, I got to get rid of this. The the yoga skeletons is it? What a specific trend that it's like who who sat at a conference table somewhere and decided that we we were going to do skeleton decor specifically doing yoga poses. It's just like a weird combination. I I'm literally staring at one right now. That's like he's like this. <laughs> <laughs> I would go pick it up and get it, but I'm worried about knocking over the computer. But I'm staring at one now because we're recording this before Halloween. In my head, I always called them yoghuls, but okay, so, I mean, these questions are so dumb. Do you have a favorite reindeer besides Rudolph? Oh, I'd say Comet. Yeah. That's the name that pops into my head. Yeah. Yeah, um, Comet. Did you know that Donner is, it was like a typographic kind of game of telephone issue over the years, and it's supposed to be Dunder because Blitzen is lightning, and it's supposed to be Thunder and Lightning? Oh my God, I did not know that. You're giving me all these interesting facts today. <laughs> I will take that with me. I have you no know, one I, to tell. No one has ever thought that was an interesting fun fact at a party, but I figured. No, I liked it, actually. <laughs> and I will use it at a party. Uh, with the reindeer, even though I just talked very extensively about how I'm on the hunt for vintage reindeer, I had an intense fear of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, mm. the claymation special. Even still to this day, but as a kid, I hated the claymation stuff. It scared me. Like, I, I would get scared of Rudolph's nose noise, you know. Mm. Like, 
in the special. And so I did have a intense fear of that's that specific holiday special. It's funny you mention that. I never got into claymation either, and I don't know why. Yeah, I I, I like like a Nightbird for Christmas or Coraline. That was brilliant, but I, it doesn't mix with Christmas to me. I don't I don't want to see claymation at the holidays. I find it all a little unsettling, which mm. works in the world of a Halloween thing or Nightmare Before Christmas. Obviously, is also a Christmas movie, but I don't like it when it's just Rudolph with the claymation. Yeah, there is something about kind of like stop motion that feels more Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of unsettling, the, uh, you asked me my least favorite Christmas song earlier, and I realized Sasha wanted to ask you: if, Are they still playing? Um, do they know it's Christmas time at all? Uh, yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, that song is such a problem. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it, a lot of them. I wish they would just retire. Like I think yes. uh, that hippopotamus song. Oh, no one's really co- not a lot of people have covered that. And when they play it on the radio, they play the original version and the original version is terrible. It's so bad. And no one likes hearing it. I don't believe that anybody does. Not I don't. Maybe one of your listeners is listening and saying they do, but I, I don't buy it. I just I, think they need to retire it. I totally agree about Hippopotamus. It'd be funny if like Ariana Grande covered it, but I just don't think we need it. And I, I not, a lot of people think this is unpopular, but I hate, hate, hate Chipmunks Hula Hoop. Oh, see, I do. I love that one. I do love that one. But it, it's the, like in the, the car. Sonically, <laughs> it's just so jarring. It's such a departure from a crooning, you know, Carpenter's number yeah. that, yeah, that I don't like to be thrown off kilter in terms of like excessive sentiment and then excessive camp. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, but yeah, I think that the I was just looking up the lyrics. Uh, yeah. Well, thank God. Well, tonight, thank God, it's them instead of you. There won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life, where nothing ever grows. No no rain nor rivers flow. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? I think people By like Delilah, Delilah or on the West Coast, if you listen to Karen Sharp, I think those yeah. kinds of people really need to take a stand this year and look into these lyrics and look into these songs and say, do I need to put them on the rotation? And maybe you don't. Maybe you don't, Danny. I'm like, I think that there's a, yeah, there's a real market for new Christmas music that's not covers and to retire some of these old classics. Yeah. There's just a few that just sonically sound terrible that we should just stop. Yeah, we really should. Do we, wait, did I ask what's your favorite of all time Christmas Carol before we go? Uh, All I want for Christmas is you probably, but I like that one I mentioned earlier, the more melancholy song It's off that first Christmas Mariah album where it's miss you most at Christmas time. I, that probably is my favorite, but it's so kind of dark and dreary that, um, the other one is fun for if you want something party wise, but I really do like the Kelly Clarkson Christmas albums. Mm. She has two of them and, uh, Cher has a Christmas album out this year, which I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. And she has a song that she released called DJ Play Your Christmas Song. And it's wild. And I love it. DJ already. Play Your Christmas Song. Yeah. Like that's the single, Kate. It's called DJ Play a Christmas Song. And it's like a dancey, it's sort of like a believe, uh, dancey Christmas song with Cher's like whole, you know, that vocal. And I am obsessed with it. And I'm so glad she has a Christmas album coming out because I'm sure the rest of it'll be great. I love crazy. I love that for at this point in Cher's life and career. It's like yeah, Christmas album, and then a very youthful techno number of DJ yeah, yeah. Christmas. Yeah. Oh my god, that's amazing, Danny. This was so so fun. I don't want to keep you because it's we're at time. Where can people you so find much. you? The book, all the things. 
I love you. Thank you for having me and taking the time. The book is called The Jolly Sponge. Get it October 24th. Uh, please, please, please. I hate to beg, but I'm begging. Please yeah. order it. <laughs> so they let me write another one. Um, but no, I'm really proud of it too. And there's an audiobook or, or hardcover out. And then I'm on social media at Danny Pellegrino. And also I'm going to be on tour. So come see me at the tour. I will be doing, uh, talking about Bravo and all that stuff uh, like I do on my podcast, which is called Everything Iconic. But there are still tickets to Nashville. I'm going to be in Nashville uh, right before Halloween. And then San Francisco, there's a few tickets left. And depending on when this is airing, also Cleveland. And then doing a couple signings as well, just book signings at one in Henderson, Nevada, right outside of Las Vegas before BravoCon. If anyone's oh. going to BravoCon, that'll be the Thursday before BravoCon. And then LA at the Grove. I'll be there November 1st. And I'm so thrilled. Barnes & Noble, LA, the Grove. Get tickets to all of this stuff at everythingiconic.com. That was gross. I'm sorry. It wasn't gross. I, everybody needs to read this book and listen to the pod. You're a delight in these trying times. You're not coming to Chicago this time for the tour? No, I'll be in Chicago, too. It's uh, The Chicago is sold out, but I'm excited. Do you know a to, guy? Could I get a tick? Yeah. Yeah, Kate, I, I'll get you a ticket for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I want to also just tell all of your listeners, like, also pre-order your book. I know it comes out in January, oh, but pre-orders are really important. And I know, I don't know if you're like me in this way, but it does feel sort of really gross to try to get people to yeah, buy something. It's you know, hard. Like, and it's hard in these times and stuff. But I just want to encourage, like, it really helps a lot. So if people are listening and they haven't pre-ordered your book yet, it really helps because it also helps the publishers this far in advance to know like store placement and, and it helps them get them in stores and stuff. So maybe people might not be thinking of that, but uh, pre-ordering it this far in advance, even though yours is coming in January, it really does help the publisher to do all that stuff. So, yeah. Thank you for favorite. saying that because I feel like I can't say it anymore because I've said it too much. But yeah, it's like th this is our our wellspring. You got to sell books. <laughs> I know, and I, I'm selling. My book comes out the same day as Britney Spears, and I'm like, I don't have the promotional muscle that Britney Spears <laughs> is going to have, and I can't wait to read hers. I'm very excited, but you know, it is hard to try to. And you feel I don't. I feel so gross. Keep telling people to buy it, but I'm like. It's hard to get people to buy something. It really is. And I honestly, yeah. this book was like what I desperately needed this week. It's so, so good. It's such a good idea. Oh, thank you. Thank so everyone, please pre-order well, pre slash buy when it comes out. Danny's own, very own Nick and Jessica Christmas Spectacular. It's worth every <laughs> thank minute you of so reading. Much, Kate. All right, Danny. Thank well, you, hopefully Kate. I'll see you in Chicago. Yes, yes. I'll email you and I'm going to send you this audio file too. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kate. Bye.